Now, Heavenly Father, we just ask you to bless our study tonight. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see your wonderful truth, to see Jesus and your great love and your wonderful plan for us all. We just ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, there's a wonderful quote that you've heard before, C.S. Lewis's wonderful quote from uh, his book, The Problem of Pain. And here it is. He says, pain demands that you pay attention to it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, we're coming to the close of King David's life and actually the book of 2 Samuel. And the book closes out with two national calamities. So God is taking out his megaphone for his people Israel. Uh, The first calamity, a drought caused by King Saul's sins. We're going to take a look at that tonight in chapter 21. And uh, secondly, coming up in chapter 24 will be a plague caused by King David's sins. And so we're going to have a look at that. Now tonight, the, the drought caused by King Saul's sins, it's an unusual account. It's not very pleasant for New Testament ears that have been tuned uh, to grace like ours. Uh, it's kind of unpleasant for New Testament hearts that have been washed in the blood of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit who are living under the benefits of grace. It makes you, this story that we hear tonight, uh, appreciate where and when we were born, where God decided rather that we be born because that's his decision. And so here we go with verse one. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, by the way, now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? So let's pause there. The megaphone. If you're taking notes, number one, the megaphone. Now, this megaphone will be called famine. And the Lord is the controller of the clouds and the rains, and and he can withhold those rains. And those rains were being withheld during the rainy seasons in the spring and in the fall. So just as an aside, just starting getting off the ground here, I think this passage really speaks to the greatness and power of our God. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 19. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided. And then a really uh, poetic way of saying it. And the clouds let drop the dew. In other words, by his wisdom, he created a world with life cycles automated within it 
to nourish the earth that he created. And of course, uh, sin in the fall of man had, has uh, turned that kind of inside out. But uh, even as Romans 8 and verse 21 tell us that even that, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage uh, to decay and be restored to its original splendor. But uh, it's just like Job says in Job 38, does the rain have a father? who fathers the drops of dew. And it's a rhetorical question. He, well, the rain does have a father, and that our father controls the weather systems. It's just amazing. When he wants to get somebody's attention, back in ancient times, he's able to withhold the rains and uh, get them to seek his face. Now, when the natural resources that we often take for granted uh, when they dry up, we start looking for answers, especially when the fix is way beyond our own reach. So now occasional famines were not uncommon and they still are not in that region. Uh, you'll remember that in Genesis 12, Abraham was forced to uh, go down to Egypt because of a famine. And then again in, in chapter 26, his son had the very same problem and, and actually went to the very same place to escape. You'll remember that uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech uh, fled from uh, uh, Israel to uh, Moab because of a famine. And so of course there's Elisha with 2 Kings chapter four and the like. But three years in a row, maybe one year, maybe two, and then at the beginning of the third year, David uh, gets a clue. He gets off the couch and onto his knees and wants to find out from the one who can keep the rains from coming. That's an awesome thing that we're talking to a person who can control the rain. That's just an amazing thought to me. And so he gets down on his knees and he's going to uh, talk to the Lord. And of course, we're not even out of verse one and it works like a charm. All you have to do is just pitch just a little bit there. Well, I wouldn't call it a little bit. It was three years, but um, it worked like a charm. And nothing really has changed much for 3,000 years. We're the same way. But that's what it takes. Uh, when everything's going fine, we're really spiritually tone deaf. And then the second things start to dry up and there's a lack or a famine. Things that we were taking for granted. Then suddenly we start to search our hearts and we start to get a little more serious at church. And then we start seeking the Lord to see uh, where, where the problem is. In Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, it says, the Lord speaking, then I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me. For as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. Uh, yeah, that sounds familiar, even though that's an Old Testament observation by God of his people and some things just don't change. So ouch, uh, without rain, the barley, the wheat, the grain, the veggies, the fruit, the slim pickings. Without rain, there's nothing to feed the livestock. You imagine what they look like now by year three, if they're still standing. Without rain, they can't buy or sell or eat. Without rain, it's nasty, dead, and brown, and everybody is miserable. And when the economy goes bad and the pressure, where, uh, when, the, when the economy goes down, the pressure goes up. On who? On the leaders. And so David has gotten 
the message one way or another, I better face uh, the problem spiritually. Now, Israel had it easy in some ways because she always knew where she stood with God because in the Old Testament economy, uh, obedience and prosperity were linked together. God just made it kind of easy for them. Outward blessing was generally tied to inner obedience. Check this out. Maybe David was reading his Bible one day. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 11. And listen to what he might have read. So if you're faithful and you faithfully obey the commands to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart, then I'll send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain your new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will, be, you will eat and be satisfied. Now, be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and mind. And so it was in the law. It was pretty fairly easy. It wasn't a 100% absolute rule that when you obeyed, everything went right, but generally speaking, Nowadays, under the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not that black and white or cut and dried, is it? Uh, God uses adversity in all of our lives. And so I think there are definitely sin-inspired sin famines that lack comes because of the way that we're acting or behaving. But those are things that we have to search our hearts, the word of God, godly counsel and the Holy Spirit uh, to, to open our understanding to what is what, because you just can't know for sure. You can't just say, oh, something bad. I must be doing something bad because something bad's happening to me. It doesn't work that way. And so the Hebrew for seeking God's face is very, it's an earnest seeking. And it sounds like he actually went to the tabernacle, went into the congregation. So he went to church. Uh, that, that is an also an option when we are struggling. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and I go to church when you're having struggles. All right, moving on. Um, so we see uh, it's more than a casual blessing. Like, hey, Lord, uh, as we bless, uh, please bless this food. And what's up with the famine? In Jesus' name, amen. That didn't happen. He was really seriously seeking the Lord, doing due uh, diligence. You've heard of elbow grease, right? When the elbow gets used a lot, right? And so there, there's such a thing called knee grease, too. I mean, I just made it up. But maybe we should call it knee power instead. I don't know. Why don't we just move on? God, God made it so easy for us, so easy. We don't have to go to the tabernacle. We Listen to this. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Now, 
Important to recognize, I think David didn't see a spiritual reason in every problem, but he didn't close his eyes to the hand of God in his circumstances. Uh, A lot of things had to happen for this church to be planted uh, in the circumstances of our lives, of Barb and my life and my family. Uh, And it was because of a famine of opportunity of ministry in the church I was serving in. There was nothing for me to do. After five years, I was sitting in the pew doing absolutely nothing as an associate pastor. So the pinch was... I want to do something. And I kept saying, please let me do something. I'll do anything. And, and it just, it was nobody's fault. It just was a famine. I outgrew my place there. And God let me know through the circumstance, through drying up the opportunity to flow and to be used, the gifts and the callings that he had put in, in my heart and life. He just used that. It was nobody's fault. We're always blaming people for everything. But, you know, sometimes he just causes a famine to get our attention and move us to the place we should be. Now, the megaphone gets David into listening posture, and the answer comes. We're still not out of verse 1, and the answer's already there. It's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty relatives. In the, in the Hebrew, it is bloodthirsty relatives. And so uh, Saul, while alive, wiped out these people called the Gibeonites. And apparently there's an ongoing problem with his sons still to this day. Now, the Gibeonites, who are they really quickly? Um, The text helps you get a sense for the seriousness of the sin that was never addressed. In the parenthetical explanation in between verses 2 and 3, we find out, well, really, uh, it was an ancient Canaanite city. So when the Israelites were coming into Canaan, there were seven nations to dispossess. And one of them, the smallest one, were the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites had already suffered at the hands of the ruthless, wicked Amorites. So in your text, in the parentheses, it says they've already been beaten up. They were already, they started out trampled, these people, by another Canaanite tribe. The bullies, the biggest bullies of Canaan were already uh, squishing them. So you'll recall in Joshua 9, here's what happened, all right? Israel came into the promised land, and all the seven nations, all of the ites, all of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, all of the ites, got together to wage war against Joshua. The only ite that didn't want to fight was the Gibeonites. Wow, that was right there. Right? Am I just, yeah. All right. Pat myself on the back. Okay, we can go on. The Gibeonites. So all of, all of them band together, but the Gibeonites say, uh, we see a pattern here, and we're going to be killed. So we got to do something, and so we're going to go make a treaty with Israel. So this is 400 years prior, and God is still upset that 400 years later, they violated the treaty. Now, here's what happened. They came and they said, the Gibeonites to Joshua, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. Make a treaty with us because we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that whole 10 plagues and parting of the the Red Sea. We heard about it. 
And, and we also heard what he did to two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, to Sihon, to Og, king of Bashan. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, you better go take provisions and go make a treaty with those people. And so uh, they had faith. They believed. They said, we're going to get killed. We're going to make a treaty with the Israelites. And so the problem was the way they went about it was deceptive. So what they did is they said, oh, we've come from very far away. And they put moldy bread, really stale bread, worn out sandals, and worn out clothes. They were really just over the next hill, right? <laughs> but they thought, well, if we tell them we're over the next hill, they could just say, what are you kidding? We're just going to wipe you guys out. So they were shrewd. And God let them be adopted in. God had mercy on them. God kind of favored them and said, I want you to honor this with them. They have faith. They didn't express it the right way. But they believed that they're going to get clobbered. And they're right. And they, they, they recite the gospel. We heard. We believe. We're afraid. Please don't hurt us. <laughs> All right? And, and so they didn't go about it the right way, but God, God, God said, you honor that. And now for 400 years, they had been allowed to live as Israel's employees. They put them to work. They said, we're going to let you live. You'll be useful. You know? And they liked it. They liked living there. Useful people. They enjoyed it 400 years. And then Saul went psycho. Now, we don't have uh, actually what happened. Enter this crazy lunatic king, and he comes in with his machetes into the place where the Gibeonites are, are peacefully abiding under the oath, a 400-year-old oath that God wanted, honored, unsuspecting, innocent people. And King Saul comes in for what? For the good of a nation of Israel, for zeal for God. We're going to kill them all. Oh, that's, that was not good. Zeal without knowledge. Romans 10, verse 2. Zeal for God. Oh, I'm so excited for God. Allah Akbar. Zeal for God. God is great in Arabic. Allah Akbar. And they say that right before they kill somebody for Allah. It's a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. And guess who had that same kind of Allah Akbar spirit? King Saul. For the glory of God, we're going to kill these innocent people. Well, God was not happy with that. Saul, what a bizarre individual. Here, you know, in 1 Samuel 15, he won't wipe out the, the wicked Amalekites. Who God is saying, these are the most wicked people on the face of the planet. He won't wipe them out, but he will wipe out these defenseless, peace-loving Gibeonites who are arresting under a, an oath in God's name not to harm them. Those are the ones he wants to wipe out. Go, go figure. So then they, they wipe them out. It's not recorded in scripture. They wipe that, them out, leave them a few guys. And then uh, go on with life as usual. Forty years later, the Lord is like, I want to settle this. And commentators say it's not just about what happened 40 years ago, that his sons, his bloodthirsty sons, are continuing in rebellion. And God wants a way to get at those boys, the bad boys. All right? 
So no remorse, no restitution, no justice. Uh, and as I said, apparently there's a similar spirit in Saul's family that's running wild and causing a lot of problems in Israel. And why is Israel suffering? Because Israel's involved. Israel probably let it happen or helped it to happen, you know? So David calls in the remnant survivors of the Gibeonites, and he um, humbly asks them how he could make amends. And this is very interesting. Uh, and he says, for Israel, we want to obtain your blessing. We want the Gibeonites to be able to give your blessing back to us. What will it take for that to happen? Because when you guys say, God bless you, thank you for whatever it is that you're going to require of us. When you bless us, the rains are going to start again. So that's what we want. We're after your blessing. What will it take to get your blessing? Uh, interesting little note I read about this. Listen carefully if you have violated somebody. Here the victim given, uh, is given the power to call the shots. The perpetrator of the pain usually likes to remain in control to set terms of making peace where, where there's been a violation. But the guilty one must give the victimized party a voice and must be willing to do what the victim needs to feel restored. Now, it bothers me personally when a pastoral leader falls from grace, the elder board comes in, they deal with it, and they give the terms of restoration, and he balks at it. it the perpetrator doesn't have any rights. They're supposed to come in like David, humbly. What is it that you want us to do to uh, make amends? Do you realize what a vulnerable place that is? For the king of Israel, they could have said anything. And he would have had a stand ready to really kind of consider doing it. He didn't come in and say, listen, we're willing to do A, B, and C. Well, which one? No. What do you all feel after what we did to you and we violated you? We wiped out your entire place in violation of, of the Lord's command. What is it that you need for us to be blessed again? Very interesting. The same thing happens with a husband and wife when one is, is unfaithful. It happens all the time. This is what the offended party needs from you, sir. Oh, no, 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 no. What do you mean, no? You committed adultery. What do you mean, no? She wants A, B, C, and D. She wants a year of this, or she wants six months away, or she wants you to take anger management classes, or she wants, and I, no, 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 no. I just want to go back. I'll do this. I'll do a week here. I'll do this. You have no, no right. You have nothing to say. Perpetrators listen to the victims and come under humbly and say, what, 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 how can I fix this? Well, they may object and say, what if it's unreasonable? Maybe you should have thought about that before you were breaking commands and breaking people's hearts. Amen? Amen. Oh, I feel so much better now. <laughs> David, David put himself, I don't know, I just, David puts himself in vulnerable places and he says, what do you require to make amends for this heinous crime? I stand ready and willing to do whatever the Gibeonites decide. And so here comes their answer, four to six. The Gibeonites go, hmm, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asks again. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us, 
and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel. Let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gebeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. So number two, the Gibeonites demands. Notice first their very humble response. First of all, the offended party says, um, what good is money? What good is money? There are empty places at our dinner tables. There are kids with no dads. Uh, we really don't want a cash settlement. A cash settlement isn't going to bring any of them back, so we're not interested in silver or gold. And then look at how they describe what had been done to them. Uh, we were destroyed, kala in the Hebrew. It means to be wiped out, swallowed up, or exterminated. Uh, we were the object of an evil plot, they go on to say. Verse 5, deconstructed. We have been decimated. The word in the Hebrew means uh, to be blown to pieces or obliterated. Shamad in the Hebrew. So money doesn't mean anything, can't bring them back, and we, do, we don't want silver and gold. Uh, and secondly, uh, they killed thousands of us. And now you want, are you thinking I'm going to turn around as the leader of the Gibeonites and say, now I want thousands of you guys to die, your women, your children, you're all going to die. Because we're not like King Saul. If you're thinking we're going to act like that, that we're going to count, you know, there were 3,500 of us died men, women, and children, so start, let's get the swords out right now. Not like that. Nope, we don't want money, and we don't want a slaughterhouse in Israel. Another quote, very good on this passage. Sometimes the victim is in shock, or uh, rather not continue the conversation, so they say nothing. They'd rather not have to think about it all over again. But that doesn't mean amends aren't called for. It just means that you're dealing with a very wounded, gracious, and humble person. So thankful for the graciousness, King David keeps pushing. They say, thanks, but no thanks. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He knows. God is requiring something of us, folks. That you need to help me here. So uh, David is relieved that he's not dealing with some vengeful, mean-spirited people. Who, who want an, uh, literally an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth would mean uh, to bring it to a, an even exchange. And to do that would have wiped out Israel. So he's thankful for this. And so, uh, so what happens? The request, if this is of the Lord and he's prompting to do something, your little ones and your women are safe, but these rebellious sons of the perpetrator are still wreaking havoc. Uh, let's take seven of the troublemakers related to the king troublemaker who did this, who have his last name. Let's get rid of them before the Lord. Whenever you see before the Lord, it means God is executing judgment open, exposed before the Lord. First Samuel chapter 15, you have uh, exposed before the Lord uh, with the king Agag, you know. So it means it's a God thing. So David has peace. He hears this, seven sons uh, or grandsons. He, see, he sees it as the, as the right thing to do. So he says, I will hand them over to you. Verses seven through nine. So the king said, I'll give them to you. Now the king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armani 
and Mephibosheth, he's a namesake for the first Mephibosheth. The two sons of Aya's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merib, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. That's a different Barzillai than David's friend, if you are actually paying attention. Now, verse (laughs) 9. Not everyone does, you know. Everybody looks like they're paying attention, but I, I really don't know for sure which ones are. But could I add, the Lord does. <laughs> Verse 9, <laughs> he, he, handed, he handed them over to the Gibeonites. Okay, so he rounds up seven of them. He hands them over to the Gibeonites who killed and exposed them all on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Pause there, number three. Justice is served. God always gets his man. Now, first of all, the grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth, grazed the bullet here because uh, there was a friendship, of course, between Jonathan and David, and David had this random act of kindness after Jonathan died and just said, go find me anyone related to Saul. I just want to bless and love on him. It's for the sake of my old friend. I promised him I would. And so in they drag, uh, literally, a lame son of Jonathan's, Mephibosheth, and he made a treaty with him and adopted him into the palace. So Mephibosheth should be killed, but he's under the protection, a special oath of the king. And so he's fine. Now there will be two sons of Saul's concubine, all right? And there will be five sons of Saul's daughter. That makes Two sons of Saul, right? And five grandsons of Saul. Seven bad boys going to be executed. Now, a wonderful commentator. Remember last time I closed with that guy from the 1600s? It was a real zinger. Well, let me, let me tell you, he, he's up to his wonderful tricks again. Listen, <laughs> not only were some of these probably involved in the crime itself against the Gibeonites, but that these men, these seven, were continual trouble to David and the peace of Israel, no one can doubt. They would have, they would have been kings and princes had the dynasty not gone to David's family from theirs. And apparently God had it out for these seven who continued in bloodthirsty ways. Now, hard passages like the one we're reading usually can be explained. Now, here's a little thing I just wrote up, all right? Dear Christian, take care to present difficult passages in the Bible in the most positive light possible. Our God is good and just, and everything he does is right. Whether it's a worldwide flood he deems fit, or conquering Canaan, or two professed Christians struck dead in a worship service in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, the subject of our text Sunday. Our job is not only to talk about love and grace, but the holiness of God and the well-deserved judgment that comes for sin and rebellion. Please defend God's honor and stick up for him in a world that's quick to scrutinize and object 
to his doings and turn their self-righteous noses up at passages in the Bible like this one. Somebody said to me, you know, I have a problem with the Old Testament. And every time I say the same thing back to them, do you know that the Old Testament has a problem with you? (laughs) Oh, my word, the gall of human beings to say, I have a problem with the way God is doing things. You are an ant. You're not, you're a, you're a flea on the ant. You know what? You're a flea on the flea of an ant, all right? I could get even, you're a microbe on the flea that's on the flea that's on the ant. Amen? Aren't we all? Unbelievable, I have a problem with the Old Testament. Why don't you tell that to the author of the Old Testament uh, when you have a face-to-face appointment with him? And by the way, you do. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. You're going to have your little 15 seconds of fame with him. I just can't handle it. And then there are evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians. Oh, I just have a hard time in the Old Testament. God is good. And whoever gets zapped, deserve to be zapped. That's just the way it is. And the, and the way, I, listen, if God wants to open up the earth and swallow up that rebellious Korah and everybody associated with him and then close the earth over those nasty people, that's his prerogative. And you know what? I, I stand back. I do. I stand way back. And then I say, you go, God. I don't say, oh, not so, God. God does what he wants. If he wants to rain down fire on two cities and say, you know, I've had it with you. I've had it. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you an example of those who through sexual immorality and perversion will inherit that kind of eternal fire. I just quoted Jude verse 7. That's why he did that. I didn't just give commentary. That's his opinion. Now, if he wants to do that, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, is there another way that we can look at this? Is there another way to explain this away? Because that's not really politically correct thing to say in this day and age, right? All right, I think I'm getting better. I'm feeling a little bit relieved. If God wants to hold back the reins for three years and until seven of the sons of the, the wretched sons are put to death, that's his business, and it's a good, just, and loving thing. You want to know how to judge God's character. There's only one way. And you don't do it by looking at the just punishment of the wicked. You do it by looking at the punishment that fell on the Son of God for the wicked. So when we want to know, hey, you know, what's up with this? I just say, you, know, you want to know what's up with something? Let me just show, turn you to, to Mark chapter 15. Let's read the story how God in a human body was crucified on a Roman cross for you and all of your sins and everybody who hates God. That's how we judge God's character. We don't judge it by looking at the just deserts of the wicked and the fallen world. Amen? Can we move on now? Thank you. So check this out for for S's, a sentence with a lot of S's in it. I didn't mean it, but it came out that way. So so seven scoundrel sons of Saul are sentenced. (laughs) 
Oh, wow. Publicly executed before the Lord. Now, the timing's important. You're told in the verse here, right, right at the time it should be raining. So those seven gallows are, are, are amidst the barren fields of brown, uh, burned foliage there, okay? He, 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 God is doing something. God will have a chance to speak to the entire nation about what Saul did, what his family did, what Israel allowed by timing all of this. And he's also going to vindicate the, the survivors, the Gibeonites. And so we picture the seven gallows or however it came down. Here's the proclamation. Saul and his bloodthirsty family hacked up an entire city of peaceable citizens who were protected under an oath to God. We let it happen. We helped. That's why it's not raining. Here's the bodies and thunder and a little lightning and a little rain. Let's finish up 10 through 14. Rizpah, who's the mother of two of them, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what she, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh Gilead. Now, by the way, they had taken them secretly from the public square at Bethshan where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. Verse 13, David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. So we're going to pause there. We're going to end there, rather. Uh, number four, a noble ending. I couldn't say it's a happy ending, but at least they get buried in a noble way. Now, first we see in verses 10 through 14a, the whole mother's vigil thing. Now, what's going on there? Well, the bodies were left unburied. That's a real no-no in Israel, but they do that when, when it's a judgment, when God's involved, it's a sign of judgment. Now, this mom, she's the mother of two of those boys, sons, men. And she spent the days and the night keeping the wild animals away. She just couldn't bear the thought of them becoming, you know, food for the vultures, really. Now, you know, one writer put it this way. If only one could reason with a son of Saul about the grief his mother will bear, the sorrow his father will share as a deterrent to, to his rebellion. But people like the sons of Saul and Saul himself, who are aggressively seeking their own sinful desires, don't consider the endless pain their godless life will inflict on others, even the nearest and dearest like a mother. Proverbs 10 and verse 1, a foolish son brings grief to his mother. What, what can you do? That's a mother's heart. And David heard about the report, and David was moved. So David decided, you know what, we're going to bring those bodies in. We're going to go on a, quite an adventure. 
to go get Saul's bones, Jonathan's bones, we're quite a distance away, bring them together with these seven remains and bury them with the family tomb. Do you remember Kish? Kish, that name was, is Saul's dad. And Saul's dad, you know, the whole story started with Saul's dad, Kish. Kish lost the donkeys. He ran away. And he said, hey, Saul, go find the donkeys. And when Saul went to find the donkeys, he found Samuel instead. And Samuel anointed him to be king. A story with such potential. I'd say, here he goes. All the bones go back. The sons, uh, the, the Saul's, uh, Kish's son, and Saul's sons, and their sons, all in one tomb. Well, who, who could have told Kish, man, when he said, go find the donkeys, man? What a story is about to take place. The saddest story you ever want to know full of potential, full of promise and hope. Do you remember the time when the Lord said to Saul after he fired him? He said, you know what? I would have made it work out for you so that you could have reigned as king and your sons after you. If you would have obeyed me, he said to Saul, I could have reworked it. I would have reworked it for you, but you wouldn't. Oh, Kish, the dad, I just, my heart as a dad and a, and oh man, it's just, it's just sad. So they collect them all up. Can we end on a positive note? All right, I will. First of all, the promise, the oath that the Israelites made to the Gibeonites mattered a lot to God, even after 400 years. And so if God has such a high expectation that men keep their promises and covenants, we can have great confidence that he will keep his covenant with us. There is an emerald rainbow around the throne of God to proclaim his remembrance to his everlasting covenant with his people. The Lord made a promise to you, and it wasn't based on your good deeds, was it? He said, I'm making a promise based on what's in this cup. And what's in this cup, think of it as my blood. The new covenant is established, not if you mind your P's and Q's, but what's in the cup. That's what binds us together. That's your safety. Not up to you, it's what's in the cup. And that you drink the cup. That's where the life is. And it, God will keep his promise. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, period. Yeah, one of my favorite promises, John 6 and 39. And this is the will of God, Jesus speaking. This is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but I, that I should raise them up at the last day. Jesus, God the Son, saying, let me just tell you about what God the Father's will is. His will is that I not even lose one. Impossible. That's God's will. I can't lose one that comes to me, that belongs to me. So if it, it depended on your promises, uh, we'd be in trouble. Uh, but you're safe because everything's riding on his promise. Secondly, the seven sons uh, of Saul, um, well, the rains will return. The blessing will re always return when the seven sons of Saul are given up. When we have seven sons of Saul running around in our hearts, doing what they will, uh, there's famine. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit we put to death the misdeeds the Saul's, we shall live. Bring the seven out, have them all executed before the Lord, and the rains will come back. 
Sometimes sin-inspired famines, like I said, he's just waiting. Would you just do what I asked you to do? Uh, give up Saul, throw the sons out, hang him up, execute him before the Lord, and the rains will come back. Now, famines aren't always related to doing bad things. Uh, we all have them, and it doesn't always mean that, but just heads up if it does. And lastly, a good little thing. Um, when all hell breaks loose, and the Bible says all hell will break loose, and it's our future, that we're on the Titanic, and the Titanic is going destined to go down. It's called the day of the Lord. Uh, the inhabitants of the earth will come under fire, justice and judgment, and then accept this, all the Mephibosheths, they're all safe. Well, we should have. We're just, we've got the same last name, and we do the same things that they've done. And just as lame, but Mephibosheth has a special deal cut with the king. And he got grafted in. He's allowed to sit at the king's table. He's safe. Bring the seven sons of Saul. I'm a son of Saul, really, as a sinner. But I've got a special deal going with the king. I've got amnesty. I sit at his table. He adopted me. So when the day of the Lord comes, those who are waiting for the appearance of Jesus are saved, rescued from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. So that's the good news. It's time for the reflections. I got five reflections for the chapter. We like to put them up now and just kind of slow me down a little bit and get you to see them. As I reflected on the chapter, I just thought, number one, sometimes chronic problems have spiritual causes, and we just have to check our hearts and go before the Lord and find out. Number two, the promises and oaths and vows that we make to the Lord, he expects us to keep our word. Number three, when you've sinned and want to get right with someone, honor them by accepting their terms for possible reconciliation. And number four, if only we would see the end of sin in its painful destruction when it's in the early stages of sparkling temptation. And number five, we can expect sin-inspired famines to end when we put that stuff to death and do what God wants. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the lesson of a portion of this chapter that speaks to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. That we be open and willing and courageous to put the hard truth uh, into place, to come under the will of the Holy Spirit not to be conformed by this world, but to be renewed and the power of the Holy Spirit transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.